You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And today, we're very excited, we're going to talk about the evidence-based do's and don'ts for living in the time of COVID-19. Before we jump into that, um, we want to start off this episode as we have past episodes with a little bit of an icebreaker. So Andrea, can you tell us, did you always want, uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? <laughs> sure. I think it's a, it's a pretty funny story. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I, I don't know if I ever really knew for sure that I was going to be a scientist, but I can say that I was always very nerdy and very interested in the sciences. So my brother and I would uh, go out in the woods when we were little kids and we would collect bugs and critters and we would identify them and catalog them and, um, you know, kind of play in the woods and, and, um, you know, it was my early entry into entomology, as it were. Um, and then as I got um, a little bit older, my mom was doing her graduate work for teacher certification at Eastern Connecticut State University. And I got this, uh, <laughs> this textbook. It's a medical textbook, The Physician's Guide to Arthropods of Medical Importance, which are basically, it was basically a medical textbook for physicians and med students about um, critters, you know, insects and arthropods that transmit infection or transmit disease or cause disease. I um, mean, I would walk around about 10 years old reading this to people, whoever would sit still and listen um, to me kind of tell them about this bug that was going to eat their skin while they're sleeping or inject oh. them with some sort of parasite. So don't let the bed book fight. <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know, I was definitely into the shock value of it all, but I was really fascinated with, you know, these, you know, microscopic and, and almost microscopic organisms that were able to kind of wreak so much havoc. And um, I think that really kind of progressed in high school where I did um, independent study with my favorite biology teacher about bacterial meningitis, actually. And I had used that to apply for some college scholarships. And um, then my college application essay really much uh, outlined my career path. I was going to get a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and I was going to be a researcher in in diseases. And and here we are. <laughs> so wow. I think um, I was I was very science oriented from a young age, and and because because I'm very hyper organized, I, I pretty much followed that path to to almost a T. Um, my my ultimate my current job is not exactly what I envisioned, but it certainly fits the bill. <laughs> Well, that is so awesome. You really are an incredible role model for young women. I mean that. Seriously. You're you're chuckling, but I'm serious. And <laughs> oh, when, thank you. when you eventually make your way down to Florida to visit, um, I can't wait for my daughter to meet you. She's actually obsessed with bugs too. Oh, I love um, it. <laughs> so that's that's awesome. Well, um, okay, well, maybe I I could talk a little bit about my journey. Um, for for any of you young people out there uh, who might be drawn to the sciences. Uh, you know, it's not always a clear cut path because science means a lot of things. And obviously, you know, Andrea, you're an immunologist, microbiologist. I'm a public health scientist. And those are both, you know, 
under the umbrella of science, but they're very, very different disciplines. So um, I, as a kid, I was always drawn to science and math. Um, I actually thought I was going to be a veterinarian for a really long time. Um, I'm obsessed with animals. Uh, <laughs> still I am, as, as you know, with my little zoo, three dogs, two cats. Um, Same. But, <laughs> but I, I was worried that I couldn't handle seeing sick animals or, you know, putting animals down. And, and so I, I started out on this just general pre-med track, like I think 90% of undergrads at Stony Brook, wouldn't you say, Andrea? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm taking all the bio classes and I hated my biology and chemistry classes. I know you you love them all. I just was miserable. Um, and instead, I really was drawn to more of the health science courses, um, took some statistics courses. And you know, I knew I wasn't done schooling. I knew I liked something in healthcare. So I decided to go for my, my MPH, my master's in public health. Um, I specialized in evaluative science. I absolutely loved it. Um, but I still still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I don't know if you know this, Andrea, but I actually did preclinical bench research in neuropharmacology <laughs> for a really? couple of years. Surprise, I did. <laughs> um, but that also just didn't feel right. It wasn't for me. Um, I spent an entire summer studying to take the MCAT. I never took it. I considered law school. I was all over the place. I thought I wanted to do health law. Finally, I sat down with some of my professors and mentors in my MPH program, uh, most of whom I'm still in touch with today, actually. And they said, you know, you're, you're, you obviously are passionate about public health. Just go for it. Pursue your doctorate. Um, so I'll try to, to wrap it up here quickly. But basically, um, you know, I have my DRPH, uh, but for a while I was considering PhD programs. I got into a couple of different programs. Ultimately, it was my my love life that helped me make the decision. Um, my my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband and father of my children, he was in med school in New York, and I didn't want to 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 uh, to break up. So it sort of <laughs> helped me figure out which program um, I, I would uh, I would join. And um, anyway, so I did an internship at the New York City Department of Health. I absolutely loved policy evaluation. Um, as a doctoral student, I spent some some years teaching, which I loved. And actually, this podcast is a really great outlet for me. It kind of allows me to. It's similar to teaching, right? So it's a really it uh, feels it's just amazing. I'm very passionate about that. Um, I'm wrapping up here, I promise. Uh, <laughs> I did a job as a health policy consultant, loved it, and decided to do my own thing. And actually, uh, my my business partner, Dr. Bill Gallo, uh, he was my professor and mentor from my DRPH program. And it's just all really fortuitous. And I feel like the whole way I was just kind of listening to my gut and following my heart. And I pinch myself because now I get to do what I love. And, and now we're doing this. Uh, podcast together. So it's all That's amazing, Jess. And um, I totally agree with the podcast. I feel like, yes, you know, bench science and and kind of staying in my my realm of scientific research is, is definitely a passion of mine, but I also love the opportunity to teach and to educate. And um, it's funny that you hated chemistry and biology so much because I actually ended up TAing organic chemistry lab, which none of the biology students even liked. And I went back for more. No um, way. But think, yeah. But I think it really underscores like my shared desire to, to also teach and educate other people. So I'm really excited that we're doing this together. Same, same. So, okay. 
let's shift gears. Why don't we do a quick recap of what we talked about last week? Andrea, do you want to do that? Sure, absolutely. So last week, we discussed the different types of vaccines and how they help us develop immunity to the actual disease of um, in question. So we talked about four different types of vaccines. These are inactivated vaccines, attenuated vaccines, subunit vaccines, and toxoid vaccines. We discussed a few different examples of each type and um, why certain types of vaccines are one type versus another. Um, we discussed how they mimic the natural infection without the risks associated with the illness, um, which gives us that long-term memory immunity so that when we do encounter the actual disease, we won't ultimately get sick from it. Uh, we also talked about some case studies that really underscored the um, importance of vaccination and what cases and illness outbreaks were like before we had vaccinations available. Um, I'm not going to get too much more into it. If you want to hear the details, you can jump back to episode two, which is shots, 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 shots. <laughs> and of course, Andrea, we know that all of our listeners have already uh, scheduled their flu shots yeah. uh, <laughs> on our last podcast, and they know that they, of course, cannot get the flu from the flu shot. Right. Um, so thank Thank you. Thank you for that recap. Um, and so, you know, today's episode is something I'm really excited about. I know you're excited about. We're going to address many of the practical COVID questions and considerations that affect our day-to-day -day lives. And um, Andrea, you know, we, we've we done a, a few of these um, IG, you know, Instagram lives and a couple of uh, live sessions on Facebook to, to address some of these questions. And I feel like you and I have just been consuming so much of the, the science around COVID. This, this episode is really going to let us, um, you know, distill a lot of those practical takeaways for folks. I think it'll be a little breather from some of the technical science that we covered in the past couple of episodes. And this will really be, again, a nice, um, you know, lots of practical applications. So, Absolutely. Um, and, um, mm -hmm. You know, obviously things have evolved since we've done some of those Instagram lives or Facebook lives or even the COVID symposium. And so I think, you know, having these kind of updated, um, you know, uh, revisions is very useful because I think people are seeing obviously the scientific method happen in real time. And so, you know, things get revised as new data arises. And I think it's a great opportunity to discuss that um, in, a, in a slightly lighter fashion than our previous episodes. Um, but we will be back to vaccines. Um, we're going to cover things like the influenza vaccine specifically, how vaccines are made, dispelling some misconceptions about vaccination. Um, but we do want to kind of mix it up with some more. Um, somewhat more digestible content. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, when we sat down to um, to outline today's episode, we realized there's so much content to cover. So we're actually going to split this into two episodes. So this will be part one. Um, and in this episode, we're going to cover prevention and hygiene. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about behaviors. So why don't we kick things off with a little COVID transmission 101 and this feels very in your wheelhouse, immunology. Do you want to get us started with the conversation? Sure, absolutely. So um, very quickly, so COVID-19 is the name for the disease caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. And I love to reiterate that because I feel there's often a lot of confusion about, you know, which term means what. So COVID-19 means coronavirus disease 2019, the year it emerged, the year it was, it was identified. Um, SARS-CoV-2 
SARS-CoV-2 is severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus number two. So it's related to the SARS uh, virus that emerged in the early 2000s. Um, so for transmission of the virus itself, there are really, you know, a major primary transmission, which is our short range droplet transmission. So because this is a respiratory virus, the virus lives in our res upper respiratory tract. Uh, then you've heard of the nasopharyngeal space. Um, that's where those swabs are collected from and, and other parts of the upper respiratory tract. So transmission is going to occur ultimately when someone breathes, talks, coughs, sneezes, etc., and expels mucus and, and saliva um, that contain viral particles inside those droplets, those respiratory droplets, um, to another person. And the primary method of that transmission is when you're in proximity to another person. So you're talking, and as you're talking, you're expelling these particles, these droplets that contain the virus. Um, you can't necessarily see those, but that's going to spread and reach that person that you're nearby and ultimately potentially infect them. That's the predominant mode of transmission at this point. There's so let's just sorry, I just want to jump in. So again, primary droplet transmission, person to person via droplet transmission. Yep. Sorry. Go exactly. on. Andrea. Nope, that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. That's your that's your predominant method. There are two secondary methods. Um, and I'm gonna talk kind of in order of um, likelihood um, or uh, predominance. So this the second potential method of transmission is now um, wider spread aerosolized droplets. And so what this means is that um, other than immediate proximity to a person, there is now growing evidence that suggests that smaller respiratory droplets can actually hang in the air after a person has exited that space or moved away from that location. And those kind of hanging suspended in air aerosolized droplets can also potentially infect other people in um, a nearby space. So this is more concerning because as we'll get into, you know, in those instances, social distancing is not sufficient. And this is going to be particularly true in indoor spaces that are poorly ventilated, because what you're going to have is you're going to have stagnant air, it's going to be hanging around and those smaller aerosolized droplets that haven't been pulled to the ground by gravity will still be in the air and could potentially infect someone. And, you know, Andrea, I immediately think of elevators. I don't know. That just came to my mind. <laughs> yes. Um, you, know, you, yeah. you don't know who's gotten on or off. Are they wearing masks? Are they not wearing masks? So, um, yeah, I'm definitely always wearing a mask, even if I'm alone in an elevator. Yep. Sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially in any public space. Um, and then the the kind of tertiary or, or you know, last possible um, transmission route is what we call fomite transmission. And this is when those infected respiratory droplets... So so these respiratory droplets that have virus inside of them land on an inanimate surface, uh, uh, or in some instances, we've seen some evidence that a pet could be served as a as a fomite. But it's a non-person object that um, you know viral particles could sit on and could survive until another person picks them up. Um, the evidence now suggests that that's probably the least predominant route, um, that the chances of this are relatively low unless it's someone that was very contagious, had high viral load, and you immediately essentially touch that surface that that person contaminated. Um, but it's still good practice to establish the hygiene practices that we're going to review um, just in case there is possibility for fomite transmission. 
And we're going to talk a lot about that when we get into things like, you know, do I need to clean my groceries? So we're going to talk, let's, yeah, remember that word fomite. We're going to be referencing that. So um, just to recap, so definitely primary mode of transmission is, uh, as you said, short range droplets, person to person. Secondary is aerosol, especially in indoor, poorly ventilated spaces. And finally, tertiary uh, transmission would be um, fomite transmission. So touching surfaces that infected people. have have touched. So um, this brings me to our herd from the herd question. I think it'll lead nicely into our next topic, a very related topic, Andrea, on masks. So um, unless you had anything else to, to say. No, let's, okay. uh, let's do it. Let's, let's hear what the herd has to say. Okay. So the herd wants to know, why did the CDC flip-flop on masks? Uh, and I, I do you, oh, sounds like you, you want to jump right in. No, you, <laughs> I have many thoughts. <laughs> no. Well, can I just kick, and I, I really, I definitely want to hear um, what, what you have to say about this, particularly from an immunologist per- perspective. I just, want to, to say here that right off the bat, they did not flip-flop, right? Yeah. <laughs> science, and you just alluded to this, Andrea, science is a process. This virus is novel. You know, come, come look, um, think back to the beginning of this year. We had just heard about this for the first time. No studies had been done. We were not sure, you know, how this virus was transmitted. So at that time, they were not recommending masks. We did not really understand the primary mode of transmission, which we now know to be short-range droplets, as Andrea just said, which is why masks are absolutely recommended. The one other thing I'll say is that we didn't want there to be a mask shortage, particularly for our uh, frontline responders. We saw what happened right off the bat. I'm sure you guys can think back to earlier this year when things were flying off the shelves. I don't know why, but we couldn't find toilet paper of all things. <laughs> so <laughs> I still can't really wrap my mind around that. But um, so that was another consideration. Anyway, Andrew, I want to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, Jess, those are great points, really critical. Um, I think from the scientific perspective, there were a few other key parameters that that we, again, didn't flip-flop on, but we learned more and we revised. And so the first is we were basing a lot of the knowledge and recommendations of this new virus on its closest relative in humans, which is the SARS-CoV virus, um, which caused SARS in the early 2000s. And in that virus, there was almost no asymptomatic transmission. So if you were visibly ill, you were sick, you were contagious. um, And actually with that virus, you got very significantly ill and you were very often hospitalized. So what that did was it eliminated sick people from the population. Um, In this instance, we have many, many cases that are asymptomatic or almost asymptomatic. Um, and we've now identified that you can be a very efficient transmitter of the virus, even if you have no symptoms or if you're during the incubation period. And that's the second point is the incubation period for this virus is very long. It's, it's an average five days, but it's range from two to 10 days right now is the current data. And so you could be walking around with the virus growing in your body 
for five days for almost a week, not knowing and infecting everybody you encounter. And um, because you're, you don't know it because you haven't gotten tested every single day, you have no way of knowing because you feel physically fine. And so you're going around spreading it. And that's in direct contrast to something like the flu, where the incubation is very short. As soon as you get infected, you pretty quickly develop symptoms. And then ultimately you isolate yourself. You stay home because you feel crappy. Um, and, and that's Andrew, not the case here. You you just read my mind. I was going to say, let's compare it to the flu. So you're saying the average incubation period for COVID is around five days. And if you look at the flu, I think it's estimated to be around two days. And yeah, that's that's the masks. It's, it's 24 to 48 hours for influenza. And there's very few cases where you're asymptomatic, you you generally at least get a fever. Um, you know, obviously if you're vaccinated, that's, you know, separate, you're protected. So. Right. So the fact that people could be pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, but still contagious is a really key and dangerous feature of COVID. Absolutely. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yep. So, so Andrea, um, obviously everyone wants to know there are all these different types of masks. You have the N95, surgical masks, cloth masks, the gaiters. Um, should we do a little bit of a review of the data on that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want to start, Jess? Um, sure. I mean, I'll just jump in by saying that uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that the N95 masks or the KN95 masks, those are the ones that um, clinicians and frontline providers are typically wearing, but not everyone can access those. If you're not in healthcare, it's going to be hard to get your hands on those. And as an aside, I was looking some up online. I don't know if you've done this, Andrea, but they're crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and so our alternatives are surgical masks, cloth, um, and gaiters. And so there was a study recently that was done, um, and there's been all kinds of, so there have been studies, there have been um, there mathematical modeling, and we're seeing that these other masks are good alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, so you can wear surgical masks. Um, those are highly effective. I think those are next in line after N95s. And then- Yeah, absolutely. And then cloth masks are great. And the really good thing about cloth masks is you can actually, um, they often have a pocket where you can put in a filter for further protection. And people are doing things like um, putting a vacuum bag filters at, or no, excuse me, yeah, vacuum filters, coffee filters to try to increase the efficacy of the masks. And I think you were about to jump in with a comment, Andrew. Yeah, sure. So so I can kind of comment. So so yes, um, you know, your N95s and your, um, your KN95s and 
and similar, uh, you know, those are going to have essentially um, bi-directional protection. So they're going to filter particles from what you inhale, and they're also going to filter anything that you exhale. Um, you know, as you had alluded to, your surgical masks are three-ply. You know, they're often blue. Sometimes they're white. Sometimes they're different colors. Um, but they're three-ply um, kind of poly material. Those are tightly woven. Those offer a high degree of protection. Um, and then also uh, your next kind of in line would be um, thick weave, um, high thread count cotton, multiple layers. Um, those actually have shown to be kind of next next in line as far as protection. Um, other materials, things that are stretchier, um, like poly blends that are stretchy, um, knits that are porous, um, things that are only single ply, those are obviously going to offer less protection. Um, so, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of misconceptions or... Um, you know, chatter about, you know, oh, well, the virus is very small, you know, none of these actually block the virus. And I think something that I want to really emphasize here is, is the pores themselves and, and kind of how this transmission happens. So with the N95, you know, the old, the, the pore size is essentially 0.1 to 0.3 microns. Um, for comparison, your surgical mask is uh, filtering pore sizes of 0.3 to 10 microns. So again, not quite as tightly woven, um, but still, but, but still quite effective. The virus itself is a size on average of 0.125 microns. It has a range of a little bit smaller to that and a little bit bigger. But the key thing here is the virus is not floating around naked. It's contained in respiratory droplets that are much larger. Um, very often they're one micron or greater in size. So the N95 and the surgical mask are going to be quite effective at, at blocking those, at stopping those from being passed to and from people. Um, with these masks particles as well, there's a phenomenon called Brownian motion, which is somewhat like an attractive field. And what this does is it actually facilitates trapping of even smaller particles in the N95. So you don't have to worry about stopping naked virus particles because that's not what's happening. You're expelling those or you would be breathing them in contained in these larger respiratory droplets that the masks would in fact stop. Um, and this kind of brings me to another misconception where people are concerned about uh, lack of oxygen while wearing a mask or breathing in their own carbon dioxide. So those molecules, CO2 and O2 are the molecular formulas, are on the scale of um, decimal nanometers. So they're hundreds of folds smaller than these um, then the virus itself, then the pore sizes themselves. There's no, there's no risk of, you know, being deprived of oxygen. There's no risk of breathing in your own carbon dioxide by wearing masks. Medical professionals and scientists wear masks before COVID-19 was even a thing. And, you know, there's no health risks associated with wearing these masks. So, Andrea, I'm so happy you said that because someone sent us, I don't know if you saw this come through, but they sent us um, something that they wanted us to dispel. So I guess there was a, uh, a Facebook post circulating, and I'm quoting the post. Brace yourself. All right. Wearing masks causes hypercap 
capnia, excuse me, hypercapnia, which causes severe respiratory problems, which will be blamed on the second wave of COVID, not the masks. So basically they were showing an illustration um, that was labeled as showing carbon dioxide toxicity. So exactly what you're talking about, they were saying that it could be caused by rebreathing your own exhaled carbon dioxide by wearing a mask continually. Um, as you just said, there's zero evidence of this. Um, my husband, who's an ER doctor and wears these masks for 14 hours, on end. He gets a real kick out of these. There is absolutely zero evidence of clear adverse effects. Yeah. And I, I, I just wanted to add that um, the latest models from our top universities are, are finding that masks are the single most cost-effective, efficient way that we could really nip this virus in the bud. Yeah, um, you know, absolutely. they're cheap, they're inexpensive. We could all get our hands on one. They don't have to be in 95s. They could be homemade masks. And they are the best way for us to prevent spread. So these these myths are really frustrating. So are you going to say something? I was just gonna I was just gonna provide an actual number. So as I mentioned, a surgical mask is gonna have uh, a pore size of 0.3 to 10 microns as an example. A molecule of carbon dioxide has a size of point Point zero 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 three three microns. So that is hundreds to thousands of folds smaller than the pore sizes. So there's no carbon dioxide getting trapped in the masks that you're going to breathe in, which would lead to hypercapnia. So let's dispel that once and for all. That's not a thing. Um, you know, we've been wearing masks, as I said, before, you know, COVID-19 was, was ever a concern in our population. So let's recap um, a little bit about masks. I think we've made clear that everyone should be wearing wet masks. Wow, that was a, a tongue twister for me. Um, they're, they're cheap and expensive. We all have access to them. Um, masks protect the wearer and others in a number of different ways. Um, the two ways that masks filter larger aerosols, and Andrea, you, you just covered this, but it's that mechanical interception, right? It's a physical barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, and inertial impaction. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing something that um, Amanda Wilson, who's an environmental health sciences doctoral student at U Arizona said, uh, but basically she, she found that the denser the fibers of a material, the better it is at filtering. That's intuitive, right? Um, that's why higher thread count leads to higher efficacy. There's just more to physically block the virus. Uh, but some masks, uh, and Andrea, I think you were talking about this when you mentioned the, the Brownian motion. Um, they have electrostatic properties, which mm -hmm. can attract smaller particles and keep them from passing through the mask as well. Um, did you want to add anything, Andrea? Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are, those are the two things. And that's why, you know, both pore size and material is very critical. Um, especially if you're dealing in the realm of homemade masks, you know, the more layers, multiple layers are going to be better as well as the tightness of the weave. Um, and then the material as well. So, you know, something like a stretchy polyester knit, like, uh, running buffs, uh, you know, all my runner friends are familiar with buffs, um, um, those are going to saturate much more quickly, both because they have a more elastic material that is going to be more permissible to droplets, but also because they're single ply. Um, so, so that's something to consider when you're um, deciding the type of mask to wear in public. Okay. Um, I think we've covered masks in, in pretty good detail here. Um, if there's nothing else to add, maybe we could move on to our next uh, topic, physical Absolutely. distancing. Do you want to kick things off, Andrea? Sure. So um, the next kind of 
prevention practice that is critical. Obviously, masks, as Jess mentioned, are the single most effective tool to nip this in the bud, you know, aside from effective treatment and vaccines, which we do not have right now. Um, But next in line would be physical distancing or social distancing. I try and say physical distancing because I feel like you can still be social from afar, um, Mm -hmm. but you want to be physically separated from another individual. And so because the primary mode of transmission is that short range droplet, um, a lot of the recommendations center around this six-foot rule where you don't want persons outside of your immediate family that you live with um, closer than six feet for any sort of extended duration. Um, Now, obviously, that's going to be coupled with other sorts of things that can increase risk, such as number of persons, um, duration of exposure, etc. But ultimately, you know, if if you don't live with a person, you want to keep that physical buffer, that distance buffer, um, anytime you're interacting. Now, a, a short kind of pass by, you know, in a grocery store is not going to terribly increase the risk, but cumulative exposures or extended interaction um, within that physical distancing range is going to increase the risk. I have to jump in with one of my biggest pet peeves. Um, (laughs) Physical distancing is extremely important. And I think that people think that that is out the window if you're outdoors. Mm. So I don't know, Andrea, if you're if all your friends on social media are posting what mine are, but they're, you know, yes, they're sitting outdoors. They're outdoors at restaurants or beer gardens, whatever it is, but they're still sitting right on top of each other. So being outdoors doesn't magically get rid of this need to physically distance, right? Because if you're sitting right next to someone and you're talking to each other or, or directly across from someone, there's still a very high risk of that droplet transmission. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And and for me, you know, I I find it very frustrating because, you know, I I am involved in the local running community and there are um groups that that have been pretty good about, you know, they halted all group runs and you know, they've resumed but now they have maximum you know, um, attendance caps and they do, you know, ensure distancing and things like that. But there are others that, you know, are like, oh, we're outside. It's okay. And, and ultimately outside is lower risk than inside. So it's all, it's all relative, but it's not no risk. And that risk increases as you add parameters that add to the risk. So proximity is going to increase that risk. Um, number of persons is going to increase that risk. Duration of how long you're spending with those persons is going to increase that risk. So if you add all of these things up, even if you're outdoors, it's ultimately going to increase that risk to what the risk would be within an indoor facility. And so it's not it's not an all or nothing. It's not, oh, I'm outside, therefore it doesn't matter. You still need to be very aware of these risks. And ultimately, six feet is not an all or nothing, right? It's not like no viral particle or no droplets containing virus is going to pass beyond this imaginary six foot line. That's just kind of a middle of the road gauge. Some droplets can certainly spread farther than that. And some may not spread as far. Um, So we still need to keep those things in mind too. And, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned running and exercise. Um, I should give the disclaimer that I have absolutely nothing to contribute <laughs> to that conversation. I'm sitting here with my meatball and cheese sub. Um, I do not. I am not proud of it, but I, I really I don't I don't exercise all that much. But um, here where I'm living in Florida, we just entered phase three of reopening. And so 
everything is sort of, you know, back to business as usual, including indoor gyms. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Andrea, you know better than I do, but I would imagine that exercise, you're, you know, you're increasing your exhalation and it's almost, it's not almost, it's definitely riskier when you're exerting yourself, you're breathing more heavily. For me, it just makes me very uncomfortable. And I would think that's, that's certainly a high risk activity that, that I would be avoiding if, if I partook in exercise. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I personally, you know, haven't, I, I, I won't go back to a gym right now. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the physical distancing concept, it, it's not enough when you're indoors, especially if you're not wearing a mask, which we're, we'll get more into in, in the second part of this episode where we talk more about behaviors. But because there is evidence of airborne transmission, any indoor facility is going to be higher risk than an outdoor facility. Um, and so when you're indoors, you have to couple masks and distancing. You can't just say, oh, I have this imaginary six-foot barrier and that's going to be fine because you have poorly ventilated spaces or you have air being recirculated by fans. Um, and so physical distancing is not sufficient, especially if it's only six feet, when you're in an indoor space with other people that you don't live with. Absolutely. Um, Andrea, I feel like maybe, do you think we can move on to hand washing? Absolutely. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Okay. So my my kids having grown up now through this pandemic are going to be the world's best hand washers for the rest of their lives. Um I we we this is just such an, another super basic way that we can really prevent transmission. Um just a generally it's it's a good hygiene practice. Uh Andrew, I'm, you'll I know you'll tell us in a little bit about how how soap and why it's effective for killing viruses. Um I'll just say that with hand washing, of course, it's when you do so, you should always remember to to scrape your hands and get underneath your fingernails and, and don't ignore your thumbs. Um, we, we often get questions about uh, which soap people should be using. And it's not, you know, you shouldn't be looking for an antibacterial soap. For starters, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a virus. It is not bacteria. Um, so any soap works. Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about why it works? Sure, absolutely. So when you, so the, the reason, obviously, the biggest reason we want to watch wash our hands is in the case that, you know, we've touched a contaminated surface or we've coughed into our hands and maybe we're infected. So you want to get any potential virus off your hands before you infect someone else or infect yourself by touching your eyes or or something else. And so soap has um, detergent in it. And what a detergent does is it breaks up oils. Um, And so the virus itself, the structure of the virus is that it's got its RNA inside this protein kind of capsule. And then on the outside of that, it has this lipid layer, which is essentially like a fatty, oily, you know, exterior. And so when you wash your hands with soap, which is a detergent, it actually breaks up those lipids that are encasing the the 
active virus and it serves to inactivate the virus. So the virus can't really properly function and infect people if it's missing that lipid layer. Um, so by using a soap that's going to act as a detergent, you're going to disrupt that lipid outer layer um, and then ultimately disrupt any of them from being attached to your skin and ultimately wash down uh, the sink. Now, um, and, and ultimately, as just reiterated, it, it is not a bacteria, it is a virus. So antibacterial soap or antibacterial lotion or anything antibacterial does pretty much nothing for that. Um, so regular good old soap, and that could be bar soap or liquid soap is going to work well. Um, if you don't have access to soap and water, um, you can use an alcohol based hand sanitizer, 60% um, or more alcohol based. Um, and what that does is it, it dehydrates the, the, um, the virus. So it works in a slightly different mechanism. It will serve to inactivate the virus. Um, but actually soap and water is a, a little bit better as far as obviously cleansing, but, but disrupting those viral particles. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about the hand sanitizer, because I think a lot of people are now making their own. I've seen so many of these tutorials, people mixing, um, aloe vera with, um, you know, b bottles of alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really that that concentration that 60% alcohol threshold is is really important. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think this really does lead nicely into the next topic that we wanted to cover, which we get so many questions about um, groceries, how do we handle groceries? Early in this pandemic, before we we really fully understood modes of transmission, and we, we already covered that in this episode, um, you'd think that I was like suiting. I had a hazmat suit on. You, you couldn't. I would leave my groceries outside the garage and wipe everything down. I do not do that anymore. And Andrea, I know we've spoken about this. You don't do that anymore either. Um, because we know that fomite transmission is, is not the primary mode of transmission, I'm much less concerned about that. I will say that I do, um, I do wash my hands very frequently as I'm unloading groceries. But again, I'm not, it's not like I'm, I'm taking out each, each individual, um, you know, container of fruit or whatever it is and, and wiping that down. I think you're in the same boat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, ultimately, you want to wash your hands before and after handling things that another person has handled. So, you know, even if you're going to the grocery store and doing your own shopping, you know, operate under the assumption that someone else has touched maybe those products, um, or, you know, the the cashier at the grocery store is, is handling them, or if, even if you're doing grocery delivery, the person who's collecting your groceries and delivering them will will have touched things. Um, so you want to wash your hands before and after handling those. Um, you know, there's no evidence that potentially an infected person preparing food, say for takeout, um, has has contaminated food and led to foodborne transmission of that. So that's not a terrible concern. But, you know, my general practice and general rule of thumb, as far as the guidelines go, would be, again, just, you know, frequent hand washing before and after handling, before and after unloading the groceries, um, you know, and, and that's really kind of best practice at this point. So I have not been to a grocery store since March, which is crazy to me. I, I have been ordering in my groceries, um, but I, my husband has gone out a couple of times. And when he comes home, um, he does, and I don't know how you feel about this, Andrea, but he does change his clothes. Um, I mean, he's a total germaphobe. He does actually shower when he gets home from being outside and interacting with other people. But at the very least, he'll he'll change his clothes. I don't know. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, 
mean, so so I I generally do the same. You know, if I'm going out for work, um, you know, and I'm in the lab, you know, I sometimes am wearing a lab coat or some sort of gowning on top of my clothing. But you know, even in that interim period, you know, I'm interacting with other people, I do I do have the practice that um, I do change my clothes and and what I do is I wash my hands very thoroughly and I wash my face very thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I'm wearing a mask all day as well, but I will wash my face just in case. Um, you know, something got around my safety glasses, which I wear in the lab as well as my mask. I'm almost hermetically sealed. Um, but, but I don't fully shower unless, you know, there's a potential risk that I maybe was around an infected person. Um, I will change my clothes though and, and do those sorts of things. Now, if you're a healthcare worker, like, like your husband is obviously showering after a shift in the ER is, is not a bad idea at all. Oh gosh. So yeah. So he obviously, as, as you're (laughs) alluding to right now, you know, he is interacting practically every shift with someone who is COVID positive. So when he comes home, he, sorry if this is TMI everyone and sorry, Ethan, Um, (laughs) but he removes his scrubs. Uh, We have a separate hamper for his scrubs in our garage. So he takes everything off there and we live in Florida. So we do have an outdoor shower. He showers outside. Um, When we wash his clothes, we wash them separate from all of our other clothes. They get washed in a sanitary wash with the hottest water possible, of course, with, with soap and detergent. Um, so yeah, so he definitely does take it super, super seriously. So I don't know if it's, you know, overkill that we shower every single time that we come in from outside. But again, at the very least, that's our comfort threshold is that we change our clothes and certainly, certainly washing our hands. And I like the idea of, you know, washing faces. It certainly can't hurt, right? This, this is good hygiene. It's, it's always a good thing. And one of the things I keep saying is like the silver lining of this uh, pandemic, if there is one, is that maybe it's raised awareness of some basic hygiene practices (laughs) that we should all be engaging in. I've heard several stories from many of my my guy friends, my male friends who um, recall situations where, you know, a guy next to them uses a urinal and then leaves the bathroom without washing their hands just outright. Mm -hmm. And it's just mind boggling to me that 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 is the thing in adults. (laughs) Yeah, that's that is so disgusting. I cannot handle. Um, Okay, so I know we wanted to cover testing. Why don't we talk a little bit about when people should get tested and then talk briefly about the difference between the two different types of tests that are available now? Sure. So um, do you want me to go ahead and jump in, Jeff? Sure, jump in, yeah. So we have have two main classes of testing. We have diagnostics and we have the antibody testing. Um, And diagnostic testing is typically related to the PCR-based testing. Um, There are a few what we call antigen testing, which are looking for little pieces of the virus as opposed to the virus RNA. Um, But ultimately, those all fall under the umbrella of a diagnostic test. So what they're looking for is presence of the virus uh, or virus component in your body. Um, So the optimal time to get a diagnostic test to see whether or fact you're infected with COVID-19 is going to be essentially from the, you know, the incubation period toward the end of the incubation period, um, you know, ultimately to kind of peak peak symptom. Um, So when you initially get infected, the virus has to attach and start to reproduce and grow inside your body. And um, at that point, it's going to start to grow and reproduce 
quite quickly until it reaches a detectable limit. Um, and that's really kind of four to five days after a presumed exposure. Um, that's kind of your optimal time frame to start to get tested. And then from there, you probably have another week, a week and a half uh, range where diagnostic testing is going to be quite reliable. Um, you know, at that point, that that five day mark, you may start to show symptoms or you may not start to show symptoms until a week or 10 days, um, you know, because we do have a variable incubation period. Before that four to five day time point, um, you may have not enough virus uh, to detect accurately. And what that can lead to is a false negative test, meaning you're technically infected, but the, um, the test can't diagnose it because you don't have enough active virus in your body at that point. And so that's really why we recommend that, that four to five day post-exposure. Um, you may still be in the asymptomatic window, but it's during that kind of end of the incubation period that you'd want to get that test done. All right, I'm going to jump in here um, with a little bit of a summary and recap, um, and, and let me know if I'm if I'm misspeaking at all. Um, so again, two different types of tests. There's the PCR, there's the antibody PCR. That's the nasopharyngeal uh, test that you know everyone's talking about the the swab up your nose. That's testing for active infection, and then there's the antibody test that's looking for antibodies that would have developed in response to previous infection. So people, actually, a good friend of mine just messaged me. Um, um, she has to travel. She has to fly. And we're going to talk more about flying in our next episode. And she said, okay, you know, when should I get tested when, when I return home? And so my response was, uh, so if you're worried about your exposure on the plane, I would wait five days after you've landed, five days from your, you know, possible exposure to get yourself tested. And again, now we're talking about the PCR test. Now, of course, if she's experiencing symptoms, if she's actively symptomatic, she can get tested sooner. Is all of that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And okay. and I do want to mention, um, I haven't jumped into the antibody test yet, but there's a second diagnostic test called the antigen test. And an antigen is a component of the virus that triggers the immune response. And, and those in this case happen to be proteins. Um, so that is another diagnostic test because it's looking for the presence of viral proteins in your body. It's very similar to, you know, the PCR test in, in terms of it's looking for pieces of the virus. Um, so that would fit within the same window. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that time frame is, is absolutely spot on. And my understanding is that, um, you know, if people, uh, the, the big problem with PCR testing is that people are not getting tested at the right time. So if you, let's say you find out that the person you had coffee with yesterday um, is symptomatic and you're worried you want to go get yourself tested, but you don't have any symptoms, if you go ahead and get yourself tested, you know, one day later, that's too soon. Um, if you're not symptomatic, you should, you should wait the five days um, from time of exposure to go ahead and get tested. That's that, that timing really is very important. Exactly. And, and I will say that, you know, that is one of the common reasons for false negatives, meaning you're getting a negative test result when in fact you are positive, um, is because the, the timing you got tested at an inappropriate time. Um, other, other reasons for false negatives are due to, you know, inappropriate sample collection. So they weren't collecting from the right cavity, the right space in your body, um, or they didn't collect for, you know, long enough, there's a, a duration that that swab needs to be used for to collect. Um, so those can all lead to false negative results. 
So I think we should, I know we're, we're getting close to the, to the end of this episode, and then we'll be jumping right into our second episode, um, the second part of this episode, I should say. But let's just talk for a little bit about the, the antibody test. Mm-hmm. And now, Andrew, you know better than I do. I don't know if there, I know there's talk of a saliva test. Is the saliva, is that antibody or is that still for active infection PCR? So that would still be a diagnostic. diagnostic. Um, and and okay. some of the saliva tests are moving towards this antigen. So a lot of these new rapid tests that you're hearing about in the media are, are these antigen-based tests um, because the principle works very similar to like a pregnancy test um, where you have this little cartridge and you get some sort of color metric indication. You don't need fancy equipment to, you know, um, um, amplify the, the DNA or the RNA in this case. Um, you can just use this this little kind of cartridge, and these can be done at point of care. So there's a move towards those. Um, they're obviously going to lose some sensitivity, but it would allow us to expand our testing ability. But again, those are all diagnostic tests. Mm-hmm. The antibody tests are going to be uh, blood-based tests. Mm-hmm. So they're going to take some sort of, um, ideally, a, a venipuncture, so venous blood as opposed to a finger prick. And I think we talked about this in the last episode, or maybe it was the first episode, but the antibody test, there was really not a whole lot of utility at the individual level. So if you're curious, you know, if you think maybe you did have the infection a couple of months ago, um, and out of curiosity, you want to get the antibody test, that could, um, you know, that that would let you know. (laughs) Um, However, that should not be affecting your behaviors or impacting your behaviors in any way. So even if you test positive and, and you say, oh, wow, I guess that, you know, that fever I had three months ago, that was COVID. That does not mean that you can stop wearing masks. It does not necessarily mean that you are protected from, from reinfection. And Andrew, I know you'll you'll talk a little bit about that. But the, the last thing I'll say is that there is utility for these antibody tests at the population level because it lets us better understand the footprint of the virus at the population level. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. With the antibody testing, it's, you know, if you're, again, curious or you're participating in one of these population studies, that's useful. Um, The antibody test is going to basically indicate whether you've started to mount this memory immunity with the the B cells and the antibodies. Um, Again, you can go to episode one if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Um, but, But again, here, we don't know for sure how long you have immunity, if you have immunity, in fact. Um, the presumption is that we probably have some sort of immunity for at least a period of time, um, but we don't know what that period of time is. It's going to be very variable from individual to individual. Um, and because we have seen some rare instances of reinfection, presumably because that memory immunity was not established strongly enough, um, we still need to operate under the assumption that you are potentially at risk still, even if you have recovered um, or have a positive antibody test. Mm-hmm. That's great. So let's can we let's just do a very quick recap if, sure. if you could tell them all about the recap. So <laughs> if you think now when we're talking about active infection, we're talking about the PCR test. That's mainly the nasopharyngeal, that swab up your nose. So again, the timing of that, if you're actively symptomatic, you can certainly go get yourself tested. If you've been exposed to either a known case or a probable case, you should go ahead and wait about five days until you get tested. Um, again, uh, there's another type of test. This is the 
antibody test. This is the um, the blood test that you could get. If you think that maybe you had the infection previously, you can go ahead and get it. But it's, it's really more for curiosity purposes, unless you're participating in a larger population research study. Um, and the results of the antibody test should not impact your behavior. The results of the PCR test for active infection should absolutely impact your behavior. Because of course, um, if you're testing positive, that's telling you that you you have COVID and you need to remain in isolation. Um, Andrew, did you want to just maybe uh, close out the episode just talking about um, how long we think that people are likely actively infectious and when they can maybe come out of... um, Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I just want to add, there's that that third type of test, the antigen mm. test. That's another diagnostic that's going to fit in the same category as the PCR test. Um, so that would be some of your rapid diagnostics. That's going to be the same timing. If you're actively symptomatic, go ahead and get that done or five days after a presumed exposure. Um, now, the one thing that I think is important to note is that you can still have pieces of the virus in your body beyond the active infection or beyond the time that the virus is still technically active in your body, Um, residual pieces that just haven't been flushed out by kind of mucus secretions. Um, And so the current data is suggesting that once you contract the illness, once you develop the active infection, um, you're going to be contagious for about two weeks, um, 10 to 14 days right now. So beyond that 14 days, uh, you may still test positive for a residual period of time. Um, But some of that could be due to the fact that there are just uh, residual pieces of the virus in your body. Um, unless you're actively culturing, growing the virus to verify that it is in fact, you know, active, uh, we can't confirm that um, per se. But right now, the assumption and the presumption is that uh, you're contagious for about 14 days, which is why that quarantine period is recommended after a positive test. Phew. Well, thank you, Andrea. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground. I'm sure our listeners need a little bit of a break. I could use a little bathroom and snack break. Um, Do you want to take us home? Sure. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. In our next episode, which is going to be part two of the COVID-19 do's and don'ts, we are going to discuss some behavioral changes and behavioral considerations to keep in mind um, when trying to limit the spread of COVID-19. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. 